Chapter Twenty Four of Black Jack by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The uneasy wait continued for a moment or more. The whisper of Joe Pollard to his daughter barely reached the ear of Terry. Cut in between them, girl. You can handle them. I can't. She responded instantly before Terry recovered from his shock of surprise. Slim, keep away from your gun. She spoke as she whirled from her chair to her feet. It was strange to see her direct all her attention to Slim when Phil Marvin seemed the one about to draw. "'I ain't even nearin' my gun,' asserted Slim truthfully. "'It's Phil that's got a stranglehold on his.' "'You're waiting for him to draw,' said the girl calmly enough. "'I know you, Slim. Phil, don't be a fool. Drop your hand away from that gat.' He hesitated. She stepped directly between him and his enemy of the moment and jerked the gun from its holster. Then she faced Slim. Obviously, Phil was not displeased to have the matter taken out of his hands. Obviously, Slim was not so pleased. He looked coldly up to the girl. "'This is between him and me,' he protested. "'I don't need none of your help, Kate.' "'Don't you? You're going to get it, though. Give me that gun, Slim Dugan.' I want a square deal, he complained. I figure Phil has been crooking the dice on me. Bah, besides, I'll give you a square deal. She held out her hand for the weapon. Got any doubts about me being square, Slim? Kate, leave this to me. Why, Slim, I wouldn't let you run loose now for a million. You got that ugly look in your eyes. I know you, partner. And to the unutterable astonishment of Terry, the man pulled his gun from its holster and passed it up to her, his eyes fighting hers, his hand moving slowly. She stepped back, weighing the heavy weapons in her hands. Then she faced Phil Marvin with glittering eyes. "'It ain't the first time you've been accused of queer stunts with the dice. What's the straight of it, Phil? Been doing anything to these dice?' "'Me? Sure I ain't.' Her glance lingered on him, the least part of a second. Hmm, said the girl, maybe not. Slim was on his feet, eager. Take a look at him, Kate. Take a look at them dice. She held them up to the light, then dropped them into a pocket of her skirt. I'll look at him in the morning, Slim. The stuff will be dry by that time. Dry or not, that's what I'm going to do. I won't trust lamplight. Slim turned on his heel and flung himself sulkily down on the blanket, fighting her with sullen eyes. She turned on Phil. How much did you win? Nothing. Just a couple of hundred. Just a couple of hundred? You call that nothing? Phil grunted. The other men leaned forward in their interest to watch the progress of the trial, all saving Joe Pollard, who sat with his elbows braced in sprawling fashion on the table, at ease, his eyes twinkling contentedly at the girl. Why she refused to examine the dice at once was plain to Terry. If they proved to have been gummed, it would mean a gunfight with the men at a battling temperature. In the morning, when they had cooled down, it might be a different matter. Terry watched her in wonder. His idea of an efficient woman was based on Aunt Elizabeth, cold of eye and brain, practical in methods on the ranch, keen with figures. The efficiency of this slip of a girl was a different matter, 
a thing of passion, of quick insight, of lightning guesses. He could see the play of eager emotion in her face as she studied Phil Marvin. And how could she do justice? Terry was baffled. How long have you two been playing? About twenty minutes? No more than five, cut in Slim hotly. Shut up, Slim, she commanded. I'm running this here game. Phil, how many straight passes did you make? Me? Oh, I don't know. Maybe five. Five straight passes, said the girl. Five straight passes? You heard me say it, growled Big Phil Marvin. All at once she laughed. Phil, give that two hundred back to Slim. It came like a bolt from the blue, this decision. Marvin hesitated, shook his head. Damned if I do. I don't back down. I want it square. Listen to me, said the girl, instead of threatening. As Terry expected, she had suddenly become conciliatory. She stepped close to him and dropped a slim hand on his burly shoulder. Ain't Slim a pal of yours, you and him? Ain't you stuck together through thick and thin? He thinks you didn't win that coin square. Is Slim's friendship worth two hundred to you, or ain't it? Beside, you ain't lying down to nobody. Why, you big squarehead, Phil, don't we all know that you'd fight a bull with your bare hands? Who'd call you yellow? We simply say you was square, Phil, and you know it. There was a pause. Phil was biting his lip, scowling at Slim. Slim was sneering in return. It seemed that she had failed. Even if she forced Phil to return the money, he and Slim would hate each other as long as they lived. And Terry gained a keen impression that if the hatred continued, one of them would die very soon indeed. Her solution of the problem was a strange one. She faced them both. "'You two big sulky babies!' she exclaimed. "'Slim, what did Phil do for you down in Tacoma? "'Phil, did Slim stand by you last April? "'You know the time.' Why, boys, you're just being plain foolish. Get up, both of you, and take a walk outside where you'll get cooled down. Slim rose. He and Phil walked slowly toward the door, at a little distance from each other, one eyeing the other shrewdly. At the door they hesitated. Finally, Phil lurched forward and went out first. Slim glided after. By heaven, groaned Pollard, as the door closed. There goes two good men, Kate. What put this last fool idea into your head? She did not answer for a moment, but dropped into a chair as though suddenly exhausted. It'll work out, she said at length. You wait for it. Well, grumbled her father, the mischief is working. Run along to bed, will you? She rose wearily and started across the room, but she turned before she passed out of their sight and leaned against one of the pillars. Dad, why are you so anxious to get me out of the way? What do you mean by that? I got no reason. Run along and don't bother me. He turned his shoulder on her. As for the girl, she remained a moment looking thoughtfully at the broad back of Pollard. Then her glance shifted and dwelt a moment on Terry with pity, he wondered. Good night, boys. When the door closed on her, Joe Pollard turned his attention more fully on his new employee, and when Terry suggested that it was time for him to turn in, his suggestion was hospitably put to one side. Pollard began talking genially of the mountains, of the varmints he expected Terry to clean out. And while he talked, 
He took out a broad silver dollar and began flicking it in the air and catching it in the calloused palm of his hand. "'Call it,' he interrupted himself to say to Terry. "'Heads,' said Terry carelessly. The coin spun up, flickered at the height of its rise, and rang loudly on the table. "'You win,' said Pollard. "'Well, you're a lucky gent, Terry, but I'll go you ten you can't call it again.' But again Terry called heads, and again the coin chimed, steadied, and showed the Grecian goddess. The rancher doubled his bet. He lost, doubled, lost again, doubled again, lost. A pile of money had appeared by magic before Terry. "'I came to work for money,' laughed Terry. "'Not take it away.' "'I always lose at this game,' sighed Joe Pollard. The door opened and Phil Marvin and Slim Dugan came back talking and laughing together. "'What do you know about that?' Pollard exclaimed softly. "'She guessed right. She always does. Ought to be a man with a brain like she's got. Here we are again.' He spun the coin. It winked, fell, a streak of light, and again Terry had won. He began to grow excited. On the next throw he lost. A moment later his little pile of winnings had disappeared, and now he had forgotten the face of Joe Pollard, forgotten the room, forgotten everything except the thick thumb that snapped the coin into the air. The cold, quiet passion of the gambler grew in him. He was losing steadily. Out of his wallet came in a steady stream the last of his winnings at Pedro's, and still he played. Suddenly, the wallet squeezed flat between his fingers. Pollard, he said regretfully, I'm broke. The other waved away the idea. Break up a fine game like this because you're broke? The cloudy agate eyes dwelt kindly on the face of Terry, and mysteriously as well. That ain't nothing. Nothing between friends. You don't know the style of man I am, Terry. Your word is as good as your money with me. I've no security. Don't talk security. Think I'm a money lender? This is a game. Come on. Five minutes later, Terry was three hundred behind. A mysterious providence seemed to send all the luck the way of the heavy, tanned thumb of Pollard. "'That's my limit,' he announced, abruptly rising. "'No, no,' Pollard spread out his big hand on the table. "'You've got that red horse, son. You can bet to a thousand. He's worth that. To me.' "'I won't bet a cent on him,' said Terry firmly. "'Every damn cent I've won from you again, the horse, son. That's a lot of cash if you win. If you lose—' You're just out that much horse flesh, and I'll give you a good enough cayuse to take El Sangre's place. A dozen wouldn't take his place, insisted Terry. That's so? Pollard leaned back in his chair and put a hand behind his neck to support his head. It seemed to Terry that the big man made some odd motion with his hidden fingers. At any rate, the four men who lounged on the farther side of the room now rose and slowly drifted in different directions. Oregon Charlie wandered toward the door. Slim sauntered to the window behind the piano and stood idly looking out into the night. Phil Marvin began to examine a saddle hanging from a peg on one of the posts, and finally chunky Marty Cardiff strolled to the kitchen door and appeared to study the hinges. All these things were done casually, but Terry his attention finally off the game caught a meaning in them. 
Every exit was blocked for him. He was trapped at the will of Joe Pollard. End of chapter 24